0: Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode uh, is inspired by a discussion that I have been having over the last couple days with Lachlan Earnshaw who's a very impressive uh, Ironman triathlete. And we had been discussing a couple of questions, and we got into the conversation enough that, at his suggestion, I decided to put the ideas into a podcast episode. So on today's episode, what we're going to explore, what is MLSS, or Maximum Lactate Steady State, how does lactate function as a component of exercise physiology? Is lactate threshold two even a real thing? And then how do we apply this in practice? Let's get into today's episode. to be something that is very much fraught with confusion, and I think a lot of the confusion is compounded by the fact that people don't necessarily know or recognize the confusion because people talk about conflicting ideas with such a high sense of confidence and certainty, and um, for most of us, we're not necessarily even aware that there are questions to be asked and if we can't ask questions because we don't know what they are then we can't you know go to the issue of well what where do I go to to find the source material and, and take a look at this uh, and so in this episode I'm going to try to offer some perspectives on this stuff I'm going to try to address uh, the questions and topics that I laid out in the introduction um, and I want to say again you know thank you to Lachlan for bringing this up it's really gratifying to be honest to see that um, you know other folks are also wondering about this same stuff um, because I do think these are the important questions that we should be asking we're moving into an increasingly uh, informational you know data dynamic um, you know I hesitate to say data driven because I think that is a very cliche term and I feel that from what I've seen is, Not that people are being data driven, but that people are being data dynamic, and that they're incorporating data. Um, But oftentimes, and as I'll discuss, I'm sure further in the episode when I get to it, um, but people are trying to force data to fit this. But I also um, would recommend that uh, anybody who's curious check out Lachlan Earnshaw's YouTube channel. I I've watched some of it, and I thought it was really. Well done. Um, And, you know, I always enjoy being able to hear what other people are thinking and what other people are doing about um, their approach to this stuff. And I think Lachlan's definitely doing a really nice job with that. So if you go and you check out his pieces, I'm sure he'd, you know, be glad to hear from you too. So... um, Let's start with kind of like an an overview introduction to this stuff, and then we'll sort of break down into these different components. So I think kind of like the original questions are, um, you know, like, should you be doing most of your training below maximum lactate steady state? And, you know, is there actually a lactate threshold one and a lactate threshold two? Um, And if you're not familiar with this, probably the easiest way to look at this concept is to look at a polarized training model, which tries to make the argument um, that there are distinctions and transition zones um, that pivot around these thresholds. Then you see models that make further distinctions where you might have seven zones of intensity. And then people try to essentially scale these zones and say these are different ranges of heart rates and and stuff like that, um, you know. I suppose I should elaborate, right? So by stuff like that, what I really mean is they might look at wattage, they might look at velocity, um, you know, other metrics to try to quantify that work being done physically. And I think that when we look at this. Um, in detail, I think what we start to realize is that there's no evidence to support this. So, you know, for the question of, like, should we be doing all of our training below maximum lactate steady state, I would say that, you know, the the shortest and most direct answer to that is yes, you do want to be working in a zone of intensity that does not exceed lactate steady state. I think that the kinds of um, exercise practices that focus on intensities um, that would in some way be able to be quantified or pointed to as exceeding uh, that steady state, I think that it's almost makes sense to think of them um, as, and I, I've used used to use this term when I coached cross country sometimes, but to think of them as more of like the choreography aspect of it, where you're working on things that are sort of very like specific or niche um, to a, a race or competition. And I think you do those when you do them to a, such a small degree compared to the overall training that I think it needs to be really conceptualized separately. And I think when you take that stuff and you act and you just sort of lump it together and you say, this is a training practice. And you're essentially saying this is of, in a sense, some sort of equivalent significance or weight to that. Um, I think that's incorrect. And as an initial example, I would point to my dad's experience running at uh, Bowdoin College and you know running in, in high school too. Um, but you know, in Bowdoin College in, you know, 1980, 1981, um, you know, obviously, you know, running on dirt tracks that were semi-rectangular, weren't necessarily banked, weren't even necessarily 200 meters, um, you know, was running, you know, sub 410 in the mile, running 816 in the 3,000 meters, um, and would go out and run, you know, aerobically. And the way he describes those runs is he would go out and he'd run for you know, probably 60, 70 minutes. Um, and he was trying to feel like he was making deposits in his fitness, not withdrawals. And I think that's a really great example of how you can identify these concepts of training. And people have arrived at these understandings without using lactate meters. But now that we have lactate meters, maybe it's easier to A, um, teach these concepts of training better. And B, in a lot of instances, to reteach uh, our brains. Um, As I've been talking about on another episode and part two of that episode of how do we cue ourselves to exercise is forthcoming down the road, Um, but I'm putting this in here in the middle because I was pretty excited about the conversation Lachlan and I were having. One of the concepts I brought up in that episode, and we'll continue in the second part of that topic, is just this basic cueing phenomena that when I've been with myself and, and other people I've tried this with gone and To the track, just running and say, hey, run a threshold. And people do that for 10 minutes. And then they come back and we check the lactate. And it's way over what it should be. So, you know, right, this issue of like, how do we educate ourselves? But um, going to an example of my dad running, um, you know, which I think were very respectable track times, right, in that context. um, And, you know, doing, you know, aerobic runs and, you know on the road and then would come back and do some couple 60 meter 50 meter strides and then he would do the races and that was it and uh you know i i remember one once in college i was sort of explaining talking about that to some people on the team when we were doing a long run and you know a couple people got so unhappy with that um and they just told me that i was you know i guess lying to them that you can't run that fast unless you're doing workouts and so you know, I got, we got the conversation, got pretty frustrated. So <laughs> we ended up finishing <laughs> the long run in separate, separate parties. Um, but anyway, so we look at this concept, right, of, you know, how do we train? And I think that like right away, you know, we see evidence that, you know, working at uh, efforts that do not exceed lactate steady state is really effective. And we're going to explore that more in this episode for sure. A uh, second major point is that I do not agree uh that there is this l t two l t one thing um i don't think l lactate threshold two exists, and I would say that you know i i agree with that independently and I also will point to um that there are other people sort of asserting this and i I think there's a variety of pieces of evidence by which we can can demonstrate that, but if you know, LT2 is, and I would say, in some sense, kind of like an act of illusion or an act of faith. And what's interesting about in general in um, sociocultural phenomena is it's difficult to try to disprove things that are substantively faith based because to engage something that is based on faith, like you're really people are at the point where it's no longer the case that they necessarily need evidence, they just have a conviction there. And I think people have essentially created l t two out of like a sense of faith or or conviction and that stuff it's like how people can find evidence for the earth to be flat I mean it's not actually evidence that the earth is flat because the earth isn't flat and I think it was it was Eratosthenes figured this out just by putting a a post in the ground at two different points and measuring that the angle of the shadow was different at those two different points so and that was like what I, what was that three thousand years ago <laughs> and a very simple demonstration and Right, but people still find evidence for that. So, just and that's one of the complicated things is that uh, when people are, you know, reach conclusions that are incorrect, um, they can still look like they're creating evidence, um, but that doesn't mean that the evidence is valid, and that becomes a challenge to look at. And I think lactate threshold too, to my mind, certainly fits in that category. So, having set this out, um, you know, we can start to wade a little deeper into this stuff, and yeah, you know, I want to share my reasoning as to why I've reached these conclusions. And then, you know, also get to, like, how do we use this kind of information to optimize training? So when you look at lactate as this sort of um, metric or, or device or insight into training, and you look at, you know, from a variety of different perspectives and different sources and, you know, materials and content out there related to it, I think that you start to see that it's a very confused area. And I think one of the problems is that we have a bias that um, everybody, including me, has this bias, I believe, that we expect things to, like, make sense, right? That if there is, like, a policy or an idea or a concept or a theory, um, our sort of initial reaction is to believe it's true. I have a friend of mine, and, you know, you can say basically anything to her, and her first reaction is, wait, really? So, which I think is maybe a little bit of a stronger reaction than most people have, but Um, For some reason, our initial brain's reaction does not seem to be skepticism. It seems to be acceptance. Um, And I think what happens is sometimes maybe even the first version of something we're exposed to that just sort of fills that empty space in our brain, and now we have something there. And so then we're sort of basically then start to weigh, and I don't think it's a conscious choice. Um, I think it's the natural behavior is then we start to hear subsequent things, and we say, well, is this the same as what I now already know? Um, And if the answer is no, it's not the same, then we say, okay, that must be wrong. And instead of, I think, if we think about it a little bit bigger, we say, wait a minute, so this is saying this, this is saying this, this is saying this. And if it's not just like a reduced pocket concentrated around this one small alternative idea, but you're seeing a variety of different information across different levels of source material and different kinds of perspectives, I think then it's like this is genuinely confused. So when you look at the academic literature it is not a consistent point, and I think that um, we see this in a couple different ways. The first way, and I'm sure I've probably brought this up on some other episodes in the past, um, but we're starting to get close to forty episodes, so that's a lot of material to try to sort through and figure out. Well, where is this coming from? Um, or you know, where did I originally say that? So I think things, it's kind of valid to restate things, even if they've come up in the past. Um, But when you look at this, you know, um, academic literature, one thing that I feel that I see on podcasts and stuff like that is people say, well, I've got this study that shows blank. And I think it's great, you know, to look at that stuff. And I think the scientific method is kind of the point. Um, But I think even before we get into the issue with these studies, um, the scientific method isn't specifically saying that, like, if something is science, then it's correct. The scientific method came historically out of a transition from Aristotelian logic to this rationalism that we now, you know, uh, identify as the scientific revolution, which we can sort of say bridges across, you know, the, the stereotype names. And obviously, there's an issue of historical representation here that would be a subject for, you know, some sort of other kind of podcast, Um, but it's still important. But, you know, we'll use these reference points because these are commonly known, but Copernicus to Galileo to Francis Bacon and Newton, um, you know, but especially we might say more so with Galileo and, and Bacon have this more commonly attributed to them is this idea of like, well, if you think something is true, then you should be able to prove it. And that actually we should try to create a mindset of you know, natural skepticism, not hostile skepticism, natural skepticism of, oh, wow, we might say, really, that's true? Okay, I want to see that it's true. Um, versus like, wow, I can't believe that's true. I, man, I've been I've been enlightened, right? Well, that's taking something on faith. And so for them, that was a process of, like, experimentation, of verification, right? Well, if that's true, then I should be able to demonstrate that. And if you can't demonstrate it, then it's not true. And, you know, during the period that we sort of... uh collaboratively call alchemical science or alchemy, I mean, there are people who are writing things in code. So, <laughs> I mean, which I guess it makes sense because you're not actually turning lead into gold. So, you you know, don't really want to put that out there because then people figure out you're wrong and you maintain that cult of mystery. But I think in the way, um, in some ways, we haven't actually totally moved past that. Um, and I think, yeah, one obstacle with academic literature is that, you know, it requires a certain level of, you know, literacy to be able to look at it and understand what's going on. You also have to just understand the structure of these papers and, and how they're presented. Um, but once you sort of master that, I think you then still see that there's um, some issues. And and one of the, the big issue with uh, exercise physiology studies is that the sampling is hugely problematic, the sampling and the scale um, and the comparisons. So like people are basically never doing training that's real world training and in economics what people would really try to study is you try to look at real world data and i know that there's been some efforts to do that like steven seiler and what steven seiler and doing that basically you know that stuff starts to validate the conclusion that you should be doing and and training below um, lactate threshold interesting right that the training that the training research that looks at real world data supports that um you know, file that away for future reference. Uh, Whereas the studies that seem to support high intensity, low volume uh, exercise are simply usually short scale studies um, where you're, I'm going to oversimplify to make the point here. But, you know, like if you have somebody who sits on a couch for six weeks and then you have somebody who lifts dumbbells um, three times a week for six weeks and then you put them in a mile run, The person who does the dumbbells is probably going to do better. And then the conclusion from the experiment would be that if your hypothesis was the athlete who lifts dumbbells will perform better, um, will, you know, have a better performance in the mile run or something like that, then you'd say, Oh, well, my my hypothesis is correct. Right. And then people, and then so when people are taking, right. So why does this matter? Well, so when people are taking uh, these studies, and they're saying, well, I've got this study here and I want to do an episode, a podcast episode or, or whatever about this study. I think that's awesome. But I think that we're not recognizing a lot of the time, um, like the issue of like, how is the study done? And this happens all of the time. Um, and then we also want to recognize, too, that like a lot of studies are uh, influenced by this, like um, industry expectations and whatever. And, you know, an example of that is um, concepts about hydration, you know, and Here in New Hampshire, it's been um, basically like, um, you know, 100 degrees, 90% humidity for several days. And the sort of guideline for um, school was to drink more water. And I think it's important to drink water if you're thirsty. But there's actually no evidence that, you know, hydration doesn't regulate body temperature. So, right, well, the encouragement to drink water is based on this belief that, well, if you drink water, that's going to be beneficial to body temperature. Um, and that's not true. That's an example of stuff that was influenced by um, industry. And, you know, Tim Noakes, you know, medical doctor, professor of sports science from South Africa, you know, proved that, you know, quite a while ago now, really in his book, which I think was called Waterlogged. And yet we're still seeing these guidelines perpetuate um, or, you know, sort of they make their way in into culture. Right. And so, this is kind of one of the issues, right? With just sort of blindly saying studies show that, right? You know, because studies can show all kinds of things, and it was just obviously if you've listened to any of this this podcast or look at our Instagram page, uh, you know that there's not an anti science, uh, you know, agenda here going on. But it's like actually pro science in the sense of like let's do what it's supposed to do, which is it's supposed to like you do this piece of research. And then, like, you just say, okay, well, this seems to support this, so what's then the next question I should ask, right? Whereas if you do a study that supports the use of dumbbells to improve my, times in the mile, it doesn't mean, okay, now, um, you know, high school and college runners across North America or whatever should be incorporating, you know, intensive dumbbell training, you know, in their pursuit of the sub 410 or sub 4-minute or sub 355-mile barrier. So another issue, though, with the academic literature that's going to create confusion is I think there's a lot of method bias uh, where people are basically trying to rationalize their preference or faith in some different models um, and and try to make the lactate data that you get fit that model. So, you know, one area where this is true, I believe, is high-intensity interval training or just like, you know, you know. And the hit is, I guess, a sort of the colloquialism for the vernacular for that. But I think if you've ever been in a situation where you've been told to do, you know, 30 second repeats at full gas, where you've done, you know, eight times to 400 as hard as you can, um, you know, with minimal recovery, and then you're like, you know, paralyzed the next couple of days, um, like that would be an example of that. You know, I can remember... I feel like almost every year at the transition to indoor track after winter break in college, you know, doing the first track workout, which was, you know, might have been an example, might be doing um, five times split five hundred, where we would do three hundred and forty-four, do like a thirty-second recovery, then do um, one uh, a two hundred in um, twenty-eight, and then take a minute jog. And honestly, it was incredible. me then and even more so now that I was doing that Uh, but was not incredible was going out and running 448 (laughs) miles on the weekend you know and at the time I didn't really understand because it sort of seemed like well the training is supposed to make you good right Uh, but now what I recognize is that the training was that was my race performance was being done in the training Um, but you know so people are really invested in that and The fact that the data, the performance data didn't support the training didn't matter. The conclusion was that the athletes were were inadequate, which is not um, a really logical approach. And then the whole point of coaching is to get people to get faster. So it's like, who cares how much you love a training model? If the athletes aren't getting better, (laughs) change the training model. But that's not always the way people seem to think based on their behavior. Um, So I think that's a thing, right, is to to start trying to interpret lactate from that you know, confirmation bias, if I want to confirm that hit is beneficial. Another big one, and maybe I'm not really sure which one is more predominant I, I in terms of the method bias, I tend to think that this second one is more uh, significant, but uh, that's VO2 max bias. And I think the big reason why the bias is here is because people think it's awesome, friggin' awesome to have a crazy VO2 max number. Right. And it's sort of, and everybody wants to be the legend with the 90 something VO2 Max. Um, uh, cause it's, I mean, it's, it's just like a personal best, right? It's like, well, I ran, you know, I may not have ever won an awesome race or done an awesome time, but, uh, you know, I've got this incredible VO2 Max. And I think in, uh, Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, maybe there's some chapter where he talks about how, you know, incredible it is that this guy with a VO2 Max of 63, you know, can, you know, run at this level. And, you know, the the Hutchinson conclusion seems to be that, well, it's because he can unlock and use his brain in like this incredible X-Men-like way. And c- give me a break, right? Uh, the reality is that, you know, VO2max is kind of a fallacy. Um, and I think Steve Magnus, who does the On Coaching podcast with John Marcus, did a really good write-up. Um, if you search fallacy of VO2max, uh, uh, Steve Magnus on his website, Science of Running, Dot .com you can read into that it's really really informative and i think it does a nice job sort of disassembling um the issues with that but the belief in vo2max and then the belief that you know training should target vo2max well then that also causes people to look to confirm that methodologically through their studies right they're trying to study that and then they're biased because they think that's correct and they're going to conclude that um and i you know i think that there's a di- there you're allowed to have bias. You know, it's not like there's this bias. I had a graduate school professor who claimed that it was possible to be unbiased, and I thought he was being rhetorical, like he you know, was doing this to, but no, he, I guess, actually legitimately thought that that was the case. And I have to say, I disagree. I, I just don't think it is possible to not have, but you want to be aware of your bias, right? And I also think that if you have a bias where it's like, well, I've developed this bias because the evidence is supporting that, That's very different from saying that, well, I think VO2 max is the shit and I've learned about VO2 max and I've been engaging with VO2 max and now, you know, I'm looking at this research and there's this lactate stuff, which is conflicting with my ideas about VO2 max. So, you know, I need to force, you know, how can I research and prove that this is the case and right and telling people, well actually, you need to work out at uh, LT2, I think is an example of this. Kind of thing. So these are some of the issues we see in the academic literature. So then we go and we say, well, where else are we seeing confusion? So the other space, and probably the space where most of us really are engaging with these ideas about training, um, is you know in the medium of like coaches and athletes and how they talk about it, and especially from the coaching point of view. Um, you know the reality is, is that when you look at like, so there's two. Uh, let's put coaches into two categories. There's like coaches that work for schools. Okay. Um, where, you know, in that case, actually, you know, right, maybe there's a more of an incentive for coaches to try to do performance. But I also think like the schools don't necessarily know the athletic department doesn't really know a, like what should be a, you know, minimum standard of achievement, um, for an endurance sports coach. Uh, and even if they did, they don't really care because um, it's the big team sports, especially football, that are really uh, paying the bills for these schools. And so that's really like what the athletic departments are, are trying to do. Certainly in the States, you're trying to maximize what the money you can get out of your football program, maybe your basketball program. You're probably not that really worried about cross country yeah probably getting a lot of booster money or donations to the school from cross country alumni either. not even this not because cross country alumni hate their school, but you know they're just more people in football. and so that more alumni, right it's this culture cultural thing, right different not really related anymore <laughs> to vo two max. so let's let's circle back to this you know stuff, right? So a coach in in a college situation right might have more of an incentive to sort of say, okay, you know I, this vo two max stuff isn't really working right? Or this hit stuff isn't really working. Athletes aren't performing. You know, gee, my job expectation is to achieve blank. Um, But if we look at the the fact that most people who do this stuff aren't doing it in that kind of a setting, and that's not because they're not elite or they're not good. It's just because most of us don't, if we do athletics for a long time, most of our experience is not going to be done as scholastic athletes anymore. So that means in this case, the coaching and the training is a market, all right. And so how does a market work? Well, in a market, we look at the concept of a Nash equilibrium, which in game theory says that the optimal strategy is to, have, is to be basically as close to your competition as possible. So that means that coaches are not oriented towards the athletes. The coaches are, are function as economic firms to generate revenue and their goal is to make money. Right. And that's their goal. So, in order to make money, how do you make money? Well, you need to retain, you know, get and retain clients. And so, what are you competing against? The coach is competing against other coaches um, because the vast majority of us are not, even if we can be incredibly good and we're not going to be at the level where we, we are winning the major, um, you know, media recognized competitions within our endurance sport discipline. Okay. And so, therefore, right, if you're not coaching that athlete, right. Um, all that matters is retaining athletes, and I think this has encouraged coaches to create artificially complex models of training, to use contrived uh, metrics such as like efficiency factor and stuff like that. And you know, I could do a whole episode series of episodes on the BS that has been created around this stuff. But by creating these things, it increases the perception on the part of the consumer that uh the coach has some sort of insight um that only the coach is capable of providing that. And, you know, as a teacher, I think I have a a mindset that, you know, you if you got, if you are presenting or providing something, that you should be able to, you know, given the enough time, really get other people to master it and understand it. I mean, if you understand it yourself, and that is evidence that other people should therefore also be capable Of understanding. But I think what we really see is this wizard of Oz, you know, kind of phenomena, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain kind of a thing. And I think that's definitely a limiting uh, factor to how we go about this stuff and how we think about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you find that coaches are not really giving advice based on what's most effective. And I think training in, in, is simple, it's become complex because we have to, A, uh, engage with the milieu of kind of like craziness um, of conflicting, competing ideas. We have issues in academic literature. Um, We have issues in the coaching and training market, the market for uh, training plans and stuff like that. Um, And, you know, we have the issue of you know coaching behavior is driven towards um you know competing against other coaches and so it's like well how do you decide between two things that you don't understand right and that actually gives greater leverage to the producer right and in this economic relationship the coach um you know or the or the training website is the producer right and, you know training peaks has really has graphs that you know make most people feel like they need um, you know, to go to the eye doctor to try to read them. Well, I don't. I I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's designed. You know, the complexity is somewhat. You know, sort of intentional. You know, and it's superfluous complexity. So, um, you know, this all of this combines to create a lot of cognitive dissonance. And then another factor I would point out that is making this complicated um, is the history of how people view lactate. Um, that for most people, it's still identified as lactic acid. Um, And, you know, and people, no matter how competent and strong they are as performers, you know, use this term and say, oh, yeah, well, the lactic acid, that's when you really start to tie up. And for some of them, it doesn't matter really how they talk about it or what their vernacular is, because what they're doing is working for them. And that's a whole nother issue when you have people who are who are successful, but they don't know why they're successful. And so then they start explaining their success incorrectly, (laughs) you know, um, which that can happen. You know, it's not like a, it doesn't make you a bad person, right? But the ability to perform is not proportional to the ability to understand, per se. Um, it could be, right? But you have to still have to learn it. Understanding is intellectual. Your your PR in the mile is not proportional to uh, uh, tr- comprehension of how to train. Um, But, you know, these ideas about lactic acid, where it's a limiter on performance or it is a toxifier or it's a byproduct or like, you know, basically now people have sort of tried to evolve lactate and say, well, lactate is an indicator of, of waste. And, you know, because of the the fact that lactate accumulation increases, uh, strain increases. Um, and then when you fail, reach at, at a failure point in exercise, it's at the highest, your highest probably going to be pretty high level of lactate a lot of the time. Um, and so people think that that sort of continues or people then further see, maybe choose to see, because I don't think they need to see it this way, but people further see that as evidence of the sort of like toxifying negative effect of it. And then this leads to uh, the empowerment of all these baseless practices around clearance of lactate, uh, tolerance of lactate, also buffering lactate, uh, utilization of lactate, you know, peak lactate, blah blah blah. And none of these things are valid or useful training concepts because they're all based on a false, inaccurate, untruthful, confused, whatever you want to say, but it's just wrong you know and and this is a reality of uh, you know talking about any ideas like there's a right answer to things. Um, and some and I think a lot of times we're very far away from that. One of the things that I've tried to outline uh in earlier episodes in this whole podcast, um, this podcast as a whole, is that I think we're actually very like low on the developmental process of like understanding of athletics and and how to train. And I think we have sometimes this sense of modernity and uh you know mastery as a culture um that obfuscates our ability to recognize that actually, you know, probably a lot of the things that we know, uh, we think we know for sure, are going to continue to be devised on. And, you know, Tim Noakes has a TED Talk where he says, you know, the problem is, is that 50% of the things that we teach or we learn are wrong and 50% are right. And, you know, the lifelong challenging is finding out which 50% is which. And um, that's why it's so important to try to be evidence-driven, to try to be method-driven, to try to be rational. And that's why, you know, understandings in society have grown exponentially. Um, But speaking of exponentially, uh, you know, this sort of stuff about lactate um, threshold being what it is as a indicator and then what the implications are in terms of training practices, I think has actually ironically led to an oversimplification. And I say it's ironic because um, it's actually very confusing. So to, to from all of a confused thing to sort of then see these oversimplifications emerge is kind of weird. But, you know, it's commonly stated that LT1 is 2 millimoles and LT2 is 4 millimoles. This is just simply not true. And I, I think this just comes down to people not being able to read graphs, which to me is like kind of concerning. Um, but I think for a lot of us, right, if we're told it's two when we're told it's four and we feel that's coming from a sort of place of authority, we'll displace what we know about, you know, graphical representations of data and just be like, okay, this is true. Um, but there's nothing magical about the 2.0 number. Um, and there's nothing magical about the 4.0 number. So 4.0 is being lactate threshold two. Um, big reason why that's a false is because lactate threshold two doesn't exist. Um, the... Second thing that we want to consider here is what's an exponential function? So if you graph an exponential function, it has a certain shape to it. And you can look up, go on Google Images and look that up. And that you can then look at the lactate threshold curve on Google Images. And you see that there's an initial period where the lactate threshold curve is flat. And then it grows. And I posted on Black Cat's Run, our Instagram page, eight examples of different um, lactate threshold step tests that I've done on the bike over the past few years where you can see this, that it sort of goes along level and then it, it starts to go up. And that's real data, so you can see it doesn't necessarily always look like the ideal curve. But, you know, in those instances, for me, it's not steady at 2.0. So we have to get rid of the 2.0 number because 2.0 is not the point of the onset of blood lactate accumulation, that OBLA. That's not where that's happening, okay? The other thing is with LT2 is that, like, Looking at the curve and being like, oh, it starts to get even steeper here. That's another threshold. That means you don't understand math because an exponential function, that's just what it looks like. That's actually the continuation of the relationship. That's not a change in the relationship. That's a continuation. The actual threshold is the point at which you shift from a linear relationship where lactate is constant, right? Within a reasonable variation is constant, okay? to an exponential function, where after that point, we see exponential function occur. And so then to just sort of arbitrarily say, like, it looks pretty steep here, you know, and then said, this must be enough, that's not a basis of anything. And and as I said, I think people are forcing other ideas onto lactate threshold because, you know, and if you go back to the market instance, um, this is a market threat, because what I'm suggesting is training isn't complicated, um, but what's complicated is learning how to train and you know figuring out as the process goes along, what do I do next, what do I do next? But people act like, you know it's like, well, here's this thing and only I have the algorithm or the software that will calculate what you should do and how your fitness should improve. Um, and again, go back to the biceps versus couch potatoes. For a lot of people getting into this stuff, it's like they maybe haven't really done anything before um, and you can get a lot of false positives, basically. So one other problem to identify here by way of like introduction and the fact that this introduction has taken a while I think shows i one of two things either i talk too much um or that the scale and the sig- and the complexity of this issue is actually really great and i i generally think that um it's not that i talk too much but that could be an example of confirmation bias but i think that really um it's the fact that we try to look for simplifications Um, of things that are complicated that creates complexity because you can't simplify things past a certain point and still be accurate. So one last problem though um, to consider here. People insist um, that threshold is a variety of different things in terms of measured performance and all of these examples that I'm going to give I believe are incorrect. Um, And I think they're also all used to point to this imaginary second lactate threshold. So people say that it's what you can do for 60 minutes. And, uh, you know, I used to try to apply this this concept where I, you know, that was my understanding at one point. Um, and I've moved past that. You know, I've taken in new information. I've recognized that this is not correct. And, um, you know, I've, I've shared, um, you know, on the Instagram page how just making that change, you know, has led to significant improvement. I mean, my, you know, running threshold by making this change has improved um, you know, by 30 seconds a mile, you know, in the last eight weeks or so. So, and I, and I feel that that's a pretty, mod, a pretty reasonable to modest, you know, improvement once you start doing this stuff correctly. Um, people also say that it's X percentage of what you can do for an all out 20 minute, um, you know, effort on the bike. That's a pretty classic example in certain circles, especially FTP circles for road cyclists. Um, We see that, uh, you know, this uh, claim in running that it's like your 10K pace, (laughs) which is super ridiculous, or that it's your half marathon pace, right? So, yeah, let's say you're Elliot Kipchoge, okay? So, Elliot Kipchoge, right, um, can do 437 for a marathon. So, what's his 10K, right? Going to be, I don't know, 410, is that going to be his threshold, Or if, you know, not 4.10, certainly probably, you know, 4.15, right? You know, we're looking in the 26 range for 10,000 meters. And so then what's he supposed to, Ali Kipchoge is supposed to do (laughs) over-unders? So he's supposed to, what does that mean? He's supposed to, you know, over-unders of, you know, do, you know, three minutes at 3.55 pace and then do, you know, two minutes at 4.15 and just go back and forth like that? Like, that doesn't make any sense, but it's easy when we look at numbers that aren't the absolute, you know, top level of performance to be like, well, I guess that's doable because, you know, we see other people running five-minute pace for, you know, 10-mile road races, you know, all the time, right? So, you know, for us, we could be like, okay, so if I'm going back and forth between 5.45 and 6.05, it's hard to recognize how absurd that is. Um, but I think when you really think about it correctly, you start to realize that's insane. Um, but also in running, people say it's like your half marathon pace. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons people hit the wall in the marathon so much is because they're going, like, at an effort that's, like, too high over threshold. You just, like, can't sustain that for that duration. right? I mean, you obviously you're not sustaining it for that duration because you're hitting the wall, right? But I'm saying that we can effectively tie that to you know, threshold explanation. And as you go further and further down the rabbit hole, I think what you begin to realize is there's a mudslide of misconceptions that are just constantly grinding their way through the landscape of training ideas. So from here, let's talk about a couple of more focused concepts. So let's talk about what is the maximum lactate steady state, then let's talk about the optimal way to increase lactate threshold Let's talk about some arguments against LT2. And then let's give a couple comments to conclude on what effective training practices look like given this information. So when we talk about um, that first part, okay, um, maximum lactate steady state. So this is where we really, I think, want to talk about and go over some physiology. And I want to point out and acknowledge that you can pick up a lot of books about training that aren't going to say this. Um, But if you got anything out of my 42 minute introduction here, it's that just because you pick up a piece of source material and it says something um, that isn't correct. And I'm going to try to explain to you why I believe this stuff to be true. And if you want to, you know, engage in the conversation or the discussion, I'm, you know, always happy to chat with people and I, I welcome you to send us a message, send me a message on uh, the Instagram at Black Cats Run. And you know I'm happy to you know hash this out with people at greater length. Um, so what physiology tells us first of all, is that lactate is energy. So that's kind of our point of origin of understanding. okay? So you need to recognize that it's an energy system. Um, the second thing we want to understand is that the body tries to do things that are efficient, and this efficiency has been created as a as you know, as a consequence of natural selection that has been going on um, for billions of years, okay? So, there's been a lot of selective pressure to do this. So, to look at these products and say, of course, the body is just dumping toxic waste into itself, that just doesn't really hold weight in terms of what we know about um, evolutionary biology. Organisms that poison themselves are not going to be well-suited to survive. So, you know, lactate is energy. Now... Basically, with the presence of oxygen, um, the body can convert that lactate into ATP and power the muscles. And as we'll see, you know, so lactate is a a vector or a vehicle to transport the energy that can be converted into that actionable energy that is ATP. So, Dr. George Brooks proved this. Um, you know, by way of his lactate shuttle hypothesis. And I read and have read in training books, tr- books that I actually really like about training, but then you get to the chapter on physiology and it makes me want to like tear my hair out because they actually end up misleading people as to how to identify intensity. And it's like, just leave that out and and talk about the stuff that you know. But so lactate shuttle hypothesis is actually this. It says that the reason why lactate is present in the blood and could be measured in the blood is because the bloodstream is, is the way um, that the energy, right, is is created, is turned into lactate in different parts of the body. And then it is shuttled through the bloodstream. So it's it's like like taking the shuttle, right? To most method of transportation, you are moving from point A to point B, and the body is using the bloodstream to do that. That's a really efficient ingenious mechanism, almost like it's, you know, the product of several billion years of selective. Um, adaptation through evolution, okay? So, and then, right, that can be taken out of the blood for whatever cells in the body need that energy, okay? So when there's a work demand, the body responds to the work demand by producing lactate in proportion to that, and that lactate is made available in the blood. So whatever cells then specifically need that can, can use that. So the lactate is used, how is it used? The lactate is used by the mitochondria. So when when people, you know, this metabolism process that uses lactate and oxygen um, is called oxidative metabolism, and this um, is used in that process, mitochondria, right? Mitochondria, a lot of people learn in high school biology is the powerhouse of the cell, That's something that they, you know, route memorize and they don't know what that means. But it's the powerhouse of the cell because it is the power house, okay? It is, it's like um, if lactate, okay, is a reservoir, then the mitochondria is the hydroelectric dam that the water drains through, right? So your ability to produce energy isn't based on the amount of water in the reservoir. It's the ton of water in the reservoir It's actually based on the capacity of the dam, right? The capacity of the dam is is what's determining that. And that's what the mitochondria does. So, what the lactate meter is measuring is that basically, like, um, if the water, if you are running the hydroelectric dam, right, you can run that up to a certain capacity. It can certain, produce a certain amount of megawatts or whatever, right? And, um, well, if, you know, if we as a society had the capacity to do a rain dance and get it to rain more um, and like, you know, cause that water to, you know, we need more water to be able to more potential energy, right? Because that's what the lactate in the blood is, its potential energy. Um, it's not actually being used as energy until the mitochondria process it and, you know, you get it into ATP. So it's coming down that dam. Right? And if the dam is operating at max capacity, but there's still more water, then it's going to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. right? And that's what's happening is the water is sitting there. The lactate is sitting there in the bloodstream uh, ready to be used. But at a certain point, like the lactate um, isn't being taken in anymore because you've reached the maximum um, capacity of the mitochondria to, to process that. But if you continue to apply a work demand, the body is just going to produce more lactate. Because it produces lactate in proportion to demand, it's clearly not producing lactate in proportion to mitochondrial capacity. So um, the only way um, that you're going to be able to increase intensity without increasing lactate accumulation is if you have enough mitochondria to process this. And if you look at my example graphs from my testing on myself, that's what you see as I go along for, you know, at at a certain wattage, then at a certain point, it starts to go up. And it's different in different times because I have different levels of fitness in those different tests. And uh, it's actually better that my fitness is not always, you know, perfectly proceeding in a linear progression because you can see how from test to test it goes up and it goes down because depending on the mitochondrial capacity and, you know, that's going to vary that, okay? So, and I would say really then uh, calling it maximum laxitate steady state is misleading. Now, I also want to say here that, you know, there's semantics issues with this stuff, right? Is people could say, well, no, maximum lactate steady states exist when you define it in this way, You're right? And, um, you know, really good point that, you know, Lachlan uh, brought up to me, you know, we were discussing the instance of when people say, well, you know, look at this, here's some data of people going 30 minutes at four or five millimole or whatever. So that shows the presence of a maximum lactate steady state. And I would say, yes, that is a state at which the lactate is steady, Okay, right? And then the suggestion is, well, then if they try to do this power, it just starts to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. That's true, right? But like, yeah, like that's how it's possible to, to work at a constant rate, okay? So what we're trying to understand in training is like, what is the point of maximum stress? So what you're trying to do is create a signal to the body that says, make more mitochondria. So how do you create a signal to... Um, you know the US Army Corps of Engineers that you need a bigger hydroelectric dam. Uh, you like start demanding more energy, you get to the peak capacity of the dam and say, look, we still want more electricity, right? Okay, so that's the signal. You know, so continuing to demand more and more, and then filling up the reservoir and trying to like flood the dam and collapse the dam, that's not gonna work. Okay, that's not effective. So what we want to be doing okay, is we're just in training, we're just trying to get to the point of where are we getting that adaptive signal? Okay, yeah, to run a 10,000 in, you know, 27 minutes, whatever your example is, to run a 5K at close to four minute pace and, you know, 1235, like to do that, like, yeah, there has to be some period where it's steady, but like every, this is not like revelatory, right? This isn't evidence of a maximum lactate steady state. It's not maximal because steady state because when you look at the test, um, a step test, like no, you you're now in the zone where when you if you increase that exertion at all, the lactate would start to increase. Okay, and you know to say that, well, look at, but if you go from 300 watts, you can be steady for 30 minutes, and now at 315, the lactate t- continues to accumulate. That's the same thing as saying that, like, if you try to run faster, a faster pace, than you can hold for 10,000 meters, you can't do it. Like, yeah, that's gonna happen. So I think that concept of maximum lactate steady state is just kind of bogus. Um, Like, you know, that's like a, that's a performance metric, right? And like, it has to be true that you can work at that level. And anytime you race, you're, you're working at that level. Okay. But training at race pace is like one of the worst practices um, that people can apply. People have been trying to, it's like the original training concept Um, And it is the worst training concept. It is exercise and futility, basically, no pun intended. Um, And we can talk more about, you know, exercises and futility on some other episode. But, you know, that concept of MLSS is wrong. So I'm using that term to say I think the maximum lactate steady state should be the maximum velocity that you can reach while lactate is still steady, So if I'm going 200 watts, 220, 240, 260, and it's 0.8, 0.9, 0.1, 0.9, that's the steady state. And then at 280, if it goes up to 1.5, now I've exceeded that steady state. Okay, it's not about can I be steady at this level? Maximum lactate steady state should be defined as maximum mitochondrial capacity. So the vernacular is causing the problem, right? It's the semantics issue. Your lactate is steady when you are able to consume, utilize as much in the lactate is not accumulating in the blood. Okay, because lactate production is increasing. You know, even when that lactate is steady in those first steps of the exercise test, your lactate production is actually increasing because your body needs more energy. Okay, so it's a steady, it's never like a steady level of lactate. Lactate is always accumulating. What's steady the only thing that's steady, in my opinion, is the utilization, okay? It's steady that you can keep using it, right, and consuming it. And then it's no longer steady when you get over that point of accumulation. So for my brother, um, you know, that's 0.7. And he gets all the way up to 320 watts and 20 watt steps from 180 to 320, 0.7 millimoles every single time, okay? And then at 330, sorry, at 340, it goes up and it just continues to go up, Okay but he has also done 435 watts for 55 minutes and he you know can regularly go out and time trial about an hour at about 400 watts okay and he's you know doing that at a, st- a effort that feels controlled because the lactate isn't just isn't you know exponentially or geometrically stacking across that effort you know maybe towards the end as he's really buckling down and trying to get that extra surge of energy yeah but there's going to be a period in which the lactate isn't accumulating, but he's not in steady state, I would argue, anymore. I mean, it, it's just, again, that's where it's semantics, right? If you want to say, well, this is it's steady across the, the 30 minutes or the time trial, then you can say that, okay? But from a training perspective, that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in what is the point of intensity in which will create stress, and then once we're creating that stress, we say, if we go harder, are we getting anything else? The answer is no, Because once you put the pressure on the body to say, hey, you know what, this is an environment where are using basically all the mitochondria, the most efficient adaptive response the body has, and it's evolved to do this, is to say, okay, if we're regularly getting a signal to use, you know, to do this, like we're in an environmental situation where it's ultimately more energy efficient to just produce more mitochondria. You know, like in a state of nature, not to sound like Thomas Hobbes, but in a state of nature, if like you know, you went out and you go full gas to, you know, hunt something or to escape from a predator or a dangerous event. um, And you're just paralyzed the next day when you wake up, because you went that, you know, hard, you're going to die, you're not going to be able to move um, effectively. And if the threat is still there, you're screwed. Like, so from an, you know, it makes sense that the body is going to move towards a more efficient adaptation. When you have random, you know, scarce, intermittent, hard exercise, the body is like, okay, whoa, that was crazy, but all right, now that's gone. You need a constant um, pressure. And when you train with the correct concept of maximum lactate steady state as a maximum mitochondrial capacity, you can do that. And so I want to, and I guess we also acknowledge that at this point that semantically, um, you know, people will probably, and some people will probably just insist, but, you know, Tristan, that's not what maximum lactate steady state is. Maximum lactate steady state is this. And if that's kind of where you're at, um, no, I guess we're at an agree to disagree point because that's where we're not really seeing the forest for the trees. And I think that's an example of kind of that, you know, method bias of like, well, high intensity VO2 max, you know, that's how it should be. That's how I want it to be. And we're just forcing that instead of recognizing what I believe the, the, the data and the research and also the historical evidence of training practice is really supporting. So key here then, right, is recognizing that lactate is accumulating. Right. And I'm restating, I realize some of these things, but I think restating it helps to better progress the point. Um, The lactate's accumulating because the body produces and makes lactate available in the blood based on the level of work we're demanding. And lactate production at the point of origin is proportional to work demand, it's not based on how much lactate we have the capacity to metabolize. We produce energy, the lactate, and make it available as energy. It's, it's kind of like how you can be a really great runner and a really mediocre cyclist, right? So like, you know, if, if you haven't done the minimal amount of exercise for your, you know, muscles and your, you know, nervous system and whatnot, you know, and your central governor to be accepting of that um, level of exercise, then if you switch and you just, you take a, a 12, 30, 5,000 meter runner and you put them in the, you know, Tour de France, they're going to get destroyed, right? Even though they have an incredible... Capacity to do aerobic exercise, but I believe that you could find a minimum amount of cycling, and then you know for that runner, and then you know put that and then predominantly do running training. Put them in the in a you know race, and provided they had the skills to do a road bike race, they'd be able to do well. And vice versa, you know, if you took well, I mean, you see Tom Demulen, you know, run some 10ks, and uh, you know is not a big runner, but is running 10k times, you know, has run. 10 K times that were pretty, that most only runners would be very pleased with, you know, and everything he's done has been on the bike. Right. And then if you get enough, just enough running that your body's familiar with that, you can, you can uh, cross that over. Right. And that's because, um, uh, you know, these mechanisms. So another question with this stuff, what, why does exercise start to get harder at the point of, um, what I am defining as maximum lactate steady state and what I am then going further, right, and saying, let's call it maximum mitochondrial capacity or MMC. Um, Well, at that point, right, so all metabolic systems are working at the same time. We don't switch from one to another as velocity and exertion increase. That's a myth. So you are getting, but you can sort of say, well, we're getting X kilojoules from these different metabolic capacities, pathways, so like an oxidative metabolism, you know, mitochondria using O2 and lactate and et cetera to create ATP, right? And you're getting X kilojoules from that. So, you know, you might be getting 70 kilojoules, right? And that's might be it. When you're using all the mitochondria, right, you can only get 70 kilojoules, right? Like the hydroelectric dam, there's a limitation. And then you, but you have the capacity to go harder. And uh, we're evolved from, you know, anaerobic organisms right? So it makes sense that we can do this. Um, all life right began with anaerobic organisms um, you know, billions of years ago. So we still have that in our pathway, but we're just more oxidative because it's just more efficient, right. So more efficient, more likely to survive. That's a trait that becomes dominant is selected for evolutionary biology again. And you know, when you look at this stuff, um, you realize that, okay, The body doesn't like turn off the seventy kilojoules it's getting from oxidative capacity, oxidative metabolism, oxidative capacity, and then switch. It's just like okay, that can't do that. So then these other systems have to like um, basically compensate in a sense, right? So now to get all additional kilojoules can only come from these, you know, now limited number of alternative systems, right? Um, like turning on solar panels on, on a cloudy day, um, you know, not necessarily going to get as much out of that as you are going to get out of the massive hydroelectric dam. So that's kind of you know, where we see that start to shift. And you know, from a, the body's perspective, from a central governor theory perspective, uh, you know, the body's like, whoa, okay, we're at, we're at the limit of this efficient system. Do we really need to do this? And so it starts sending out these stress signals um, and, you know, that's sort of what the central governor theory suggests is that the body starts pacing itself um, more and more aggressively. And the way it does that is by creating distress. Um, and what training obviously shows is that if you improve fitness, something that might be impossible. You know, People who once never could run a mile in five minutes, ultimately some of those people get to the point where they can run a marathon at under five-minute pace, which I think is a great, simple, illustrative example of this. Okay, but there's always a point at which you're going to, eclipse the capacity of that oxidative system and when you do that you get into a state of distress. So the steady state that people have and again my example graphs I think reflect this even just for myself there's individual variance but it can look different for different people but basically if you start easily enough and you gradually increase the intensity um, you know for a while you'll just continue to produce the same millimole reading plus or minus 0.1 or 0.2 millimole. But at some point, it'll go up by half a millimole to one millimole. And at that point, if you increase intensity, it won't jump back down. It will probably go up by another half to one millimole. And then as you increase it, it, right now, we're at the point of exponential function. Okay. And that's the tipping point for me. That's the point in which you've exceeded maximum lactate steady state. Um, And, you know, right, maybe people feel that I'm bum rushing and stealing their terminology um, so if, And if that's how you feel, let's say, hey, that's the point. You've exceeded maximum mitochondrial capacity. We aren't trying to train to stimulate lactate. We don't have a problem producing lactate. The body produces lactate, okay? That's not the issue. We're trying to use our energy. So we're trying to get to the point where we stimulate the mitochondria. So my youngest brother, for example, um, and he's done a 67-minute and a half marathon, right? You know, his is 0.7, right? Um, you know, mine is around one. Um, 0.9 to 1, um, uh, other people that I've tested, it's been, you know, 1. 1.3, 1. 1.5. So I've tested, tested one person who it is close to two, but it's, it's different, right? So for different people. And so you can't really know this unless you're looking at that data. So what's the optimal way? Second part here, what's the optimal way to increase lactate threshold? To get the most improvement in lactate threshold, it's Uh, I think, important to recognize that you do not, like, pull this up, you push it up, right? So, and I would say that, like, the only thing we should really care about, and this is why I say training activities that are done over lactate threshold, which should be very minimal, um, also just basically shouldn't even really be considered like, exactly training or a different training zone, um, because really the only thing that ultimately makes you better as an endurance athlete is um, to, like, improve lactate threshold, because that's how we get better over, overall. So, you know, and lactate threshold is, like, how fast can I go while still just maintaining the exact same level of blood lactate accumulation I had when I was running 10-minute pace or when I was doing, you know, 100 watts. So, um, The way we do this is by subjecting the body to a stress environment uh, where it essentially perceives there are constant pressure on its mitochondrial level, okay? And if we do that, we'll see improvement. And the biggest problem that I see that people have who are sort of maybe getting close to doing this the right way is that it's just so easy to drift over threshold and into higher intensities that people can't, they just can't help themselves. And they end up doing a couple impressive sessions and then, but then they're absolutely dead, and they can't do much more beyond just like struggling, and and feeling sluggish and feeling absolutely dead. And I've done this myself. And you know, if you think that's how it is, you will. You tend to accept this stuff. And you know, my favorite example, because I like, I think that the historical perspective is a huge deficit in how we think about this stuff. Um, and part of the deficit in historical perspective is people just say, well, the older it is, the more likely it is to be like wrong and outdated. And I don't agree um, with that. So the Arthur Littier, New Zealand runner and endurance coach, pretty much reached the conclusion that getting as much time as possible at what he called the maximum aerobic steady state, which, you know, I would call my thing is maximum um, mitochondrial capacity or what i say this is really the only thing that matters when we think about maximum lactate steady state so for, for Lydiard, he only counted miles run in that zone he said subjectively that could be 70% to 100% of that maximum aerobic steady state now if you have a power meter uh, you don't really want to count down 30% off um, from your um from your you know lactate threshold but he's saying in terms of how it felt right i was more descriptive You know, it wasn't an actual because they weren't running around with power meters and and stride pods and stuff like that. So, and that's where the 100-mile training week comes from. It came from Lydiard. And for him, it came from that was about how many miles they did in that aerobic zone. So, you know, for guys at that level, you know, running, you know, low 13s for 5,000 meters, 354 for a mile, you know, whatever. Let's say that their, um, you know, maximum aerobic steady state is say, I don't know, like 530 pace six-minute pace, you know, maybe maybe that's too conservative, but, like, if we use the conservative number, that means that 100 miles a week is 600 minutes a week of steady state, um, of, you know, maximum mitochondrial capacity of lactate threshold. And, you know, that's, like, comes out to whatever, like maybe 70 to 90 minutes a day. And they also did, you know, a number of miles um, a week the aerobic zone, which can be up to, but also somewhat below the maximum um, mitochondrial capacity, below lactate studies, uh, lactate, th- let's just call it lactate threshold going forward, rest of the episode, keep it clear, um, lactate threshold. And they would, but they would do another 20 to 50 miles a week like that. But he didn't say they ran 120 or 150 miles a week. He emphasized 100 miles a week because he's saying like, look, this is effective because of the, the significant dosing um, of lactate threshold zone training, okay? And, you know, that goes back to the concept of that when you give your body, you want constant pressure and exposure to this demand, that's what causes the epigenetic genetic response. And, you know, if, basically, Lytiard said that, like, if you train really hard, like, you can't get better, okay? It doesn't really work. But by training easy, okay, it gets better. And what's hard about it is, like, setting aside the time, it's, you know, getting yourself to do it when it's not enjoyable because of the weather, because of, you know, competing interests that you have, etc. But the actual physical exercise isn't really that hard. It's cumulatively hard. Um, but when you stay under um, lactate threshold, you don't generate muscular fatigue and you can do work in that state pretty much every day. Um, and, you know, that's the other key to, to Lydiard's epiphany is that you can do this all the time. And I would say a modern example is uh, what the Norwegians are doing now, like that's basically they're doing the exact same thing. Um, they're just using different vernacular. They're using lactate meters, and they're doing it more so as intervals. Um, and I think one of the thing uh, aspects of intervals is like sometimes that's a way to sort of, you know, make sure you're not going too hard, right? And I think that's the only value of intervals is to not go too hard. Um, if you want to go hard, don't do intervals. Just like go as hard as you can until you're you're dead. Um, and good luck with that. So in essence, I think that's really strategically, uh, conceptually, how you improve, uh, how you optimize that is you optimize it by spending as much time as possible doing it. And um, then you have to work, either be really self-aware, or you work with, you know, some friend or a coach to try to like reflect on what you're doing and try to figure out, okay, am I getting fatigued? Am I, am I, you know, because if you start to get fatigued, you're actually going to be going to be limited. And you know, as my dad said, even if you're running a great 1500, basically the first 1200 meters needs to feel pretty easy. Um, and I think that's a lot of people don't understand that. And I think the key to, to running well or doing well in endurance events is to murder yourself. So how about argument against LT2 then? So all of Alexander Boo, the coach of the Norwegians, um, Christian Gustav, has come out and said that there's no evidence For the existence of a second lactate threshold. There's no physiological evidence for that. So, you know, if you don't, if my voice and my examples aren't good enough and you want an authority figure, I think Olav currently has authority figure status in endurance sports. And uh, so he's saying it doesn't exist. And then you look, so here's somebody saying that's not a thing. And then you look at, you know, the results that some of his athletes are getting. And I think this is ironically further supported by the fact that Gustav and Christian really have been kind of unremarkable this year. And I'm not saying that from the perspective of like, you know, I feel that I'm what like, what they're doing, even when they're unremarkable, it's still to me remarkable. Um, but for them, right, relative to what you would think they'd be able to do, um, they're sort of struggling. And I don't know this for a fact because I'm not party to this information, but I would speculate, and I think it's a grounded speculation, to say that they probably switched to trying to train culture to imaginary LT2 or do VO2 max intensity because they're thinking about the Paris Olympics. And they think, well, that's what you need to do to do shorter races. And um, I think they should have just kept doing what they had been doing. And I think you do that, you do a couple of races and then you're good. You know, whatever, quote unquote, anaerobic intensity you need, you get from races, even if you're a middle distance track runner, you're an athlete in any sport focusing on races that are maybe three minutes, 13 minutes long, like you still need very, very little anaerobic intensity. You know, I'd recommend everybody check out the book, Easy Interval Training. It's probably one of my two favorite training books. I don't, I think the physiology section I think is off. Um, and maybe I'll do an episode where I talk about that. But I think if you set that stuff aside and you just look at, really pay attention to what the author himself is actually saying, you know, Klaus Luck is saying you should be doing, I think it's like, holy crap, right? This guy gets it. And uh, when you look at that in conjunction with Arthur Lydiard's book, Running with Lydiard, or some of his other books, um, I think you really start to see this picture being pushed together. Um, so, and, and that's the other interesting thing too, right, is that the uh, lactate threshold, you know, evidence is actually really now validating these people who are like, nope, you're training too hard, you need to be, aerobic and it's actually feels pretty easy um and training is not about purifying your soul so right so never mind though for these uh Christian and Gustav uh, never mind if you're talking about doing 60 minute or longer triathlon races <laughs> right you know like that's even would be even less of a logical demand to do this high intensity but you know I also understand that you know I think Christian is sort of traditionally been the better you know shorter distance runner he's the guy who won the olympics and um in tokyo and you know then you have this sort of sense of like well you know he likes to to go harder and i get that like for some people that's it's very cognitively and, and uh neurochemically rewarding but you know you wonder kind of what's driving this stuff um so anyway there's just nothing happening at that point physiologically and Alexander Booth says that and I've tried to I think introduce this a little bit. But you know the only change is that you go from using lactate to exceeding your mito, from using the lactate to exceeding your mitochondrial capacity to utilize it. And then it accumulates. That's the only thing that you see on that graph, right? Um, and you know looking at it and being like, oh it's an exponential function and but it gets really steep there. That's like a that's like a grade school math question of like, oh, and then the whole point is to like explain, actually, this is an exponential function. So even though it doesn't, it's not a constant slope, it's actually a constant relationship. So it's not like there's anything go- going on there mathematically, in my opinion. Um That's just kind of how e- exponential functions look. And, you know, I think that's important to recognize, like, there's sort of some just sort of like visual illusion bias. Um And I get, though, that people are saying, yeah, but for 30 minutes, you can do blank. And, you know, but then look how high up that is on this curve. Yeah, but like all that is, so you're what you're telling me is that like people can run a steady tempo for 10,000 meters. And like you're, you're like just learned that. Like people have been doing that back to Pavo Nermi and, <laughs> and before people have been pacing evenly. Like that's okay. And you just, but you just suddenly realized that people can go, go, run steady, you know? because like by that same token you could just say well if that's the steady pace that's the steady pace and i think that's where people are just like going off the deep end and they're not even thinking about what the lactate actually means lactate is energy what's the point in which we have a tipping point like there is not there's nothing there's nothing uh happening at that lt2 level like that hasn't already happened the only change is you change you first you increase intensity and you can consume and make use, of, take advantage of the increasing lactate production, and then you get to the point where you don't have enough mitochondria, and so the lactate production increases as it has been increasing all along, and then it starts to accumulate. Okay, but then if you like level off that you know you know training uh, intensity increase, yes, for some length of time you are going to putter along, you are going to hum along, um, and then you are going to hit the wall. OK, um, but that doesn't that's not a threshold, OK, because like that that is when the threshold is derived from the concept of what's happening physiologically, um, you know, energetically with the system. OK, that's you're not seeing anything at that LT2 point, um, you know, from a training culture perspective. Right. We said that people just are trying to force high intensity training and they're trying to, you know, and that's what they're doing is they're trying to say, well, how can I use lactate? to measure my higher intensity, my VO2 max stuff, how can this metabolite tell me about that? And really what the metabolite is telling you is that your high intensity stuff is bogus and the most effective athletes have always been athletes who've really figured out how to be, get a good aerobic training, right? And sometimes that has been using faster intervals but then the recovery is important, right? Because actually the recovery um, really determines whether or not that's effective. So, but think about this. People used to think cigarettes would treat asthma, right? So, people are capable of believing anything. Um, well, LT2, I think, is also not validated from an outcomes perspective, right? So, that would be another kind of, you know, way to look at this. If there was a uh, real truth to the LT2 thing, then it would be significant and easily identifiable, Um significant and easily identified improvements that would present themselves from working at that kind of intensity. But there's really no evidence in practice that doing that. And my experience as a coach, coaching cross country and coaching other people bears this out. Um, And I think people can convince themselves that it's true. And I know that a lot of elite athletes um, like to claim they did this special workout or that special workout. And I think people can be national champions and they can be Olympians And not necessarily understand training at all. Like for some people, training just kind of falls into place. Um, And those people are the exception, you know, and not the exception because, well, the training works for them because they're superior. They're the exception because they came into these situations where the paces that they were being assigned by their coaches just weren't too hard. You know, they might have been over their lactate threshold, but they weren't so far over their lactate threshold that they couldn't improve. And so for them, it just always kind of worked. Um, and they never had the salt they never have to solve the puzzle of their success and so they just say well this is what I did because they say when they did it I was the best but you'll notice how for example um, performances keep improving over time so that means that elite athletes like have not unlocked all the truth and I think what you know happens is that when you have people who move to training aerobically you see this and I think there's some experimentation you know with you know, variability but you know when you're looking at it in aggregate that's what you see um you know my dad used to chain train with uh, uh Joni Benoit in the early 80s and in uh, in Maine and when he ran with her you know he describes that they would just out the door immediately 530 pace and just do that for 20 miles right which is a little under a two, two hour run and you know Joni's certainly one of the best marathoners to ever do it I think that that's you know pretty objective but like it's not there wasn't you know he doesn't talk about you know doing crazy workouts right he's talking about going out being you know aerobically doing aerobic work right you know and focusing on that and accumulating that um a great case study uh, about elite uh, nordic skier can't remember her name um but uh, it's uh, frontiersin.org if you just look up elite case uh, nordic skier case study like the skier, in order to um, get better, she had to decrease her training done around this supposed LT2 by, it looks like, about half and actually increased total amount of training time and increased training done um, below lactate threshold, um, increase that from 85% to like 93% of her training. And then she had this five-year period where she was just totally dominant, um, you know, which is you know, a long time in the scale of being at the absolute elite end of sports, right? But if you play that out to like, I want to be a good athlete for myself, well, then you're talking about just being awesome for decades, right? Personally, right? Maybe you can't always be, you know, the absolute best of the world best, because, you know, you know, youth, unfortunately for all of us, you know, plays a role in performance. But I think the fact that, you know, this, you know, this is what I'm saying when like Uh, it's not validated from an outcomes perspective. If LT2 was a thing and it was important, then cutting the LT2 and doing more easier training would have caused the athlete to do worse, but it was the exact opposite effect. I think that's, you know, really, really significant. Um, And, you know, so all this leads me to believe it's a myth. But even if LT2 was a real threshold, the reality is it's just so inefficient to train at that intensity. It's like, sure, you're also telling the body you don't have enough mitochondria but you can do that for like maybe 40 minutes a week, right? Whereas Lydia is saying is, well, actually, we found that you can do it for 500 to 600 minutes a week. That's a totally different level of thing. And we also know from the way the body adapts that it adapts to consistent. You want to get acclimated to the heat, You just needs to be hot all the time, okay? If, you know, right, the, if you go out, if you have air conditioning and you're like, that's hot and you go outside for five minutes, and then you come back inside for a minute and you go back outside for minutes. minute. So you do that five times and you do that once a week and spend the rest of the week in air conditioning, you're not going to get acclimated to the heat. The epigenetics of the body doesn't respond to that to that body. It's just like, what was that? Right. It's just like this thing, you know, going by in the, in the corner of, of your vision. You know, it's just a it's, it's irrelevant. But um, like you just can't hold the intensity of LT2 for nearly a long, you know, per rep, per workout, per week. So it's just not as, you can't get as much like signaling power to the body, enough like pressure to like make the response to increase that lactate threshold by increasing um, the mitochondrial capacity. And it just creates so much muscular fatigue that the rest of the training time just becomes ineffectual. I, I believe in training a lot. I don't really think junk miles is true. I think junk miles occur as a, as a product of training hard. VO2 training creates junk miles. People say you should do VO2 training because junk miles are a waste of your time. Junk mileage occurs in high-intensity training. It occurs in VO2 max training protocols. That's what creates junk miles because the fatigue is too high and then the rest of the training is useless. So that they, if they do the other training, all it does is they're just going out and their legs are tired. And so when you're really that tired, any amount of additional work is just going to increase fatigue, right? So it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, Right. But you can, the reason why high volume war only works um, is when you're doing uh, LT1 is because that's the point in which you're getting that stimulus. Like there's no magic happening, okay? There's nothing is happening there. There's no evidence for LT2. I believe it is a myth. Okay. Last part. You've made it this far. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope that this is as interesting and engaging to you as it is to me. Um, but effective training practices. So once you know the intensity needs to be below lactate threshold and it's a waste of time to be uh, training at LT2 and LT2 is a myth, then the question becomes the issue is how do you design training? And I think here it's important to recognize that you don't train the body to tolerate lactate uh, or clear it or whatever else, right? You produce lactate, that's good. So the right training makes you faster. So For example, you know, stuff like over-under is a waste of time, right? So we really recognize now that there's no benefit to fitness of training over that intensity. Okay, and that's why Lydiard said you do the, you know, high volume of, you know, aerobic uh, training period. He says that do that as long as possible. And it's the other phases of training, you know, that sort of work on kind of specific things um, that are not about lactate threshold, you know, but, you know, they help and and that's a different issue. Um, but if you want to get fast, um, you know, you're really focusing on the aerobic training. Okay. So here I say, how do you do that? Well, I think you want a combination. You can use some continuous steady paced sessions. Uh, but I think actually it's more effective to design a pattern of short and long intervals with short and long recoveries and you know, vary what that looks like in which you're working in that threshold zone, kind of like how Lydia describes that as this subjective 100% but can be down to subjectively 70% of uh, lactate threshold. And I think that's really important. And it's not to say that you're going to a track and you're walking or you're standing around. It's like you're going out and you're doing a loop. You say, okay, here I'm going to be a little bit stronger towards the lactate threshold and then I'm going to back off, right? And you're just sort of varying it, Right. Um, you know, benefits of that is it's more enjoyable. Um, it allows you to sort of be able to practice going a little faster without just sort of like, okay, I've now initiated this pace. I must do this the whole way. Um, that's not necessary. Um, and Because reality is do, even doing like, if you go out and you do an hour, or an hour and a half, uh, you know, but for runners, you do a two-hour run, you know, you know in that lactate steady state zone, you're going to f- usually feel great and then you're tired. You know, so we're managing fatigue is an important part of training because if you are too fatigued, it's hard to keep to keep doing this stuff. Um, so, also thinking about like how much volume per week, like that's the point of stimulus, right? It's not how fast is the five by one mile session, you know, how good is your two by twenty minutes. It's um, about like vo- aggregate volume. Um, that's the point at which you see. This improvement. And I think, you know, from here, the work becomes individual. Uh, and it has to be responsive to how the individual is feeling, what allows the individual to, you know, improve, what, are the, what is, um, you know, the right kind of stylistic approach to doing this stuff. And some of that has to do with like, what's more enjoyable, what's more motivating. And then you have to evaluate, you know, individually and see what's responsive. Okay. And I think if you do that, I think you're going to get better. But if for people who are feeling like they're not improving, but they put in a lot of time or they feel like they get there, you know, feel like they're going in different directions at the same time, I think that the problem is overall, aggregate intensity needs to change. And I think really what this ultimately implies is that there's really like only one training zone right? And that you're just trying to figure out how to get as much time in that zone as possible, and that the other kinds of things we might try to do to improve performance and competition need to usually be done significantly less, and it would be more beneficial to think about them in different ways. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope that you found this enjoyable, thought-provoking, um, engaging, maybe this has challenged some preconceived notions that you've had. Um, I'm happy to engage with people um, who are interested in knowing more or have specific questions. Um, if enough other interesting questions come up, we can use that as uh, the basis of another podcast episode. Otherwise, you can look for part two of uh, who's on first coming up sometime in the next few weeks and we'll catch you next time.